And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. This year, the University of Aberdeen in Scotland slapped a trigger warning on J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, a classic children's novel about a place where nobody ever grows up. Yes, you heard that correctly. A children's book now comes with a trigger warning for adults. And what's more, Peter Pan isn't the only children's book that comes with an advisory at Aberdeen. Among others are Treasure Island, The Railway Children, and even The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Last year, the university put a trigger warning on Beowulf, the epic poem considered one of the most significant works in the English literary canon for its depictions of animal cruelty and ableism. And you know what? Aberdeen isn't the only British university following in the steps of American counterparts. This trend is alarming. Not only does it fly in the face of research on the effects of such advisories, there's something particularly perverse about appending them to works of literature and art. Engaging with art isn't simply a matter of extracting information or following the storyline. Literature is transformative precisely because it has the ability to shock and surprise. It can jolt us out of our complacency, force us to contend with the uncertain, the strange, and even the ugly. I can't help but think that there's something broken when universities, the very institutions entrusted with helping young minds mature, infantilize students by treating them as fragile creatures. What accounts for this shift? To find out, you'll have to read my piece for Persuasion titled The Futility of Trigger Warnings. Amna Khalid's piece, called The Futility of Trigger Warnings, was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Matthias Matisse. Matthias is actually my colleague twice over. He is, like me, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and also, like me, teaches at Johns Hopkins University, including at SAIS, the policy school in D.C. Matthias and I had a conversation about the state of Europe, trying to think about some of the big challenges the continent now faces because of the war in Ukraine, because of the rise of far-right populists from Hungary to Italy, because of the need for the country to reinvent its strategic position in the world because of its economic ties to countries like China, but also some of the ways in which Europe seems to be proving resilient, being able to sustain some amount of real solidarity with Ukraine, slowly reorienting its foreign policy, being able, at least in much of a continent, to contain the influence of those new far-right parties. So if you're trying to think through where Europe is going from Brexit to Germany to the war in Ukraine, this is the conversation for you. Matthias, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure, Yasha. Thanks for having me. So I thought that we would try and think a little bit about the state of Europe today, which I know is a big question. It feels to me like Europe has felt like the sort of stagnant or declining continent for a long time. It now, with the war in Ukraine, faces both a real security challenge and, in a way, the obsolescence of its strategic geopolitical model over the last decades. 
you see the rise of these right-wing populist movements across the continent. But at the same time, Europe seems more resilient than we might have thought with decent economic performance, at least in big parts of the continent, with these right-wing populists not yet able to actually subvert democracy, at least in most of Western and Northern European countries, for the record looks much more concerning in Central Europe, and with solidarity with Ukraine holding up for now. So what is the state of Europe? How do we make sense of these contradictions? It's an excellent question, because especially the last 10 years, the last 10 to 12 years, you could say with the onset of the euro crisis, so dated back to late 2009, early 2010, there's been a whole series of integration crises that really have been at the heart of the EU, whether it was the euro or the single market, right? whether it was debt, whether it was migrants, whether it was the security crisis, of course, over Ukraine, which started in 2014 already. And to me, those 10 years are significant in the sense that they're reminiscent of the 1970s and even the 1940s, right? Is that these were big decades of crises for the European project. Of course, in the 50s, it started. In the 70s, it stalled. And then in the 80s, it got a new lease on life. That, in the end, my cautious optimism comes from the fact that this decade is over and that there's now external pressures of Europe to get its act together when it comes to strategic autonomy, when it comes to other questions, economic questions, the things that we've learned from the last 10 years that were based on the settlements of the 1980s, 1990s, that's run its course, right? And so there is this old saying by Jean Monnet that Europe always moves forward through crisis, will be constructed through crisis. I've always thought that was dangerous because it's kind of a reassuring frame for EU elites to say that every crisis somehow has a silver lining, which I think is naive. That said, Crises in the past have led to progress in the European project if and only if national elites, and with them I mean key national elites of key member states, traditionally Germany, France, when the UK was a member of the UK also, but Italy, Poland and so on, share a common view of how to move forward. And I think we're potentially at a moment right now because of the external pressures, which started with the Trump presidency, followed by Putin's invasion of Ukraine in early 22, and also the pandemic, which has pushed Europe into a much more solidaristic direction better. So you're basically saying, if I understand right, that Europe is moving in a coherent direction and actually has the answers to some of those strategic challenges. I guess I'm a little taken by surprise by that, because for all of the strengths that I also pointed out in the framing of my question, it seems to me Germany, for example, has not yet come to terms with what Zeitenwende really means. I think if Zeitenwende actually means that Germany is going to be able to provide for its own security to a meaningful extent and help countries that are under attack from authoritarian powers that want to subvert the basic post-war order, Germany has not yet moved to do all that much for that. I think when it comes to the EU, we still seem to be stuck in this slightly weird never zone where we're not willing to do as much integration as it would take for things like a single currency to really work well over the long run, but nor is anybody talking about taking a step back and dissolving it. So what is the nature of this kind of common vision of European elites that you think both exists and that is coherent? First of all, you're not wrong. Everything you point out is correct, right? We're at the beginning of this moment. We're still in the fog of it, and it's hard to see. 
So we're basically like, if you want to push the comparison with the 1980s, you're like in 1985 now, right? Single market hasn't come together. Single currency is still in its infancy, right? And of course, the Berlin Wall hadn't come down and enlargement wasn't even on the agenda yet. The only enlargement we're talking about was Portugal and Spain. So we're at the beginning of a concept. You can call it EU sovereignty. You can call it strategic autonomy. The commission prefers to call it open strategic autonomy. The beauty of those terms is that they're vague. Different countries have different interpretations of what it means, which if you're a good diplomat, usually means that you can move forward on something, right? So a few things have happened that make me slightly more optimistic. Number one, the UK has left. If the UK hadn't left on January 31, 2020, the pandemic resilience fund that came together over the summer in record time wouldn't have happened as fast as it did and wouldn't have been as generous as it were. That's not a Hamiltonian moment in the sense that this is kind of like what Europe would need to make the Eurozone work. I agree with you. But it's the beginning. It's something they can build on if there's future crises, because there will be money left. The invasion of Ukraine meant for Germany a dramatic change. The Zeitenwende speech was key. They haven't lived up to it. I agree with you. But the things they've set in motion, right? No longer the end of Nord Stream 2, but the end of Nord Stream 1. The fact that they are going to spend a significant amount of money more on defense, what they're going to spend it on, whether they're going to buy American weapons or French weapons, these are all things to be sorted out, right? But there's no going back, if you know, to February 23, 2022, the day before Russia invaded Ukraine. So I'm optimistic in the sense that none of these things even happened in the last three years, right? And that now they're on the agenda. They've happened to some extent and EU leaders, future leaders can build on it. What do you think about the internal political state of European nations? Because it's one thing to sort of think about what the EU is going to do. The coherence of the EU is already quite challenged by the presence of countries like Hungary and Poland that are acting like spoilers in many ways. But if you get similar kinds of governments in other European nations, the ability of the bloc to act is going to be reduced further. And of course, there are concerns about the stability of democracy internally. When Giorgio Meloni was elected as Prime Minister of Italy a few months ago, even US media outlets, which usually mostly ignore Italian politics, were covering that event quite intensely for a natural reason, which is that Meloni comes from a post-fascist party, is associated in that way with Italy's fascist past. And that obviously led to serious concerns about the future of Italian democratic institutions and Italian society abroad. To what extent have those fears been realized? And to what extent more broadly do you think that European countries are managing, even as some of those far-right populist parties continue to be influential in some places to be part of a government or even to have a majority in the government, to what extent are European countries succeeding in preserving the democratic institutions despite those challenges? Yeah, excellent question. I tend to think about how member states behave within the European Union around Albert Hirschman's old idea of exit voice and loyalty, right? So the exit option was clearly chosen by the United Kingdom. And I think the experience that the UK has had exiting the EU has been so dramatic and so disastrous, really, that it became a UK union problem rather than an EU problem, that this has triggered in the minds of many Eurosceptics, both left and right, but of course, it's the right-wing ones that tend to be doing better and that are also in some countries in power, 
has made dramatically rethinking of how they see European integration, right? So if you take Orban or Meloni, for example, what they really want is reform Europe from within. They don't want to leave the euro. Of course, Hungary is not a member of the euro, but Italy clearly is. They don't want to leave any of the structures or the institutions, but they want to change the instruction sheet, if you want, the software on which those institutions, the hardware, are run, if you want to put it that way. So what did Meloni learn from both Brexit and from the earlier experiment of populism Italy had in 2018? Don't mess with the markets, right? Don't sow panic by talking about parallel currencies or about exiting from the fiscal side of the Eurozone and things like this, right? So the difference now is, and that's also true for Orban in Hungary, there's real money on the table. Right. And so that's where I referring to earlier to the next generation EU pandemic recovery fund, which was agreed in the summer of 2020 and the money started flowing in January 2021. For those countries, this is a significant amount of the economy, right? It's a few percentage points of GDP. If Meloni and her new government, her right wing government, right, which is really led by her party, a post fascist party, if she wants to secure something close to 80 billion euros over the next few years, she needs to play the game by the EU rules. And she knows that. So what you have seen no panic in bond markets since she came to power. You've also seen actually the spreads, which everybody was obsessed with in the bonds between Italian bonds and German bonds gone down. So that's number one. But of course, what you do see happening is things on migration, internal questions of democracy, rule of law. That's more problematic, but we can get to that later. If you look at Orban, he finally had to make a deal with Europe where he said, okay, we'll sign up to some of those reforms you want us to do. We'll see whether he'll do them. But the money has now become real. And also the EU has shown in the case of Hungary that they're willing to go it with 26 of the 27 members when it comes to releasing money to Ukraine. So they're taking some leverage away. That doesn't mean that they've given up on creating some sort of illiberal EU, but they're still very far away from this right now. So I guess I'm most skeptical when it comes to Orban, for example. I mean, you know, the conversation about doing something meaningful to impede the extent to which he has taken power within Hungary, concentrated power in his own hands, you know, made the media landscape within the country incredibly homogeneous, really undermined freedom of speech in serious ways, such that ordinary citizens are afraid to speak up, pushed independent institutions like Central European University to leave the country, channeled a vast amount of money into the hands of his friends and associates, you know, undermined the rule of law. Now, that has been going on for a very, very long time. And Orban all throughout has been willing to play a game of two steps forward and one step back, right? Has been willing to make very extreme proposals and then, you know, take back the most egregious parts of them while preserving other elements which helped him build his power. So, you know, when you reference this recent deal between the European Union and Hungary, what makes you think that this is more of the same? What makes you think that there's some reason to assume that Orban will, in fact, relinquish some of the concentration of power he has been able to build rather than this just buying him a little bit of time and ensuring that money continues to flow from Brussels to Budapest. I think that ship has sailed, right? I mean, my friend and co-author Dan Kellerman at Rutgers University told me this already 10 years ago, that this was the biggest crisis for the EU because it was about internal values and about, you know, rule of law and democracy and that this was going to be very hard to solve. And that compared to that, the euro crisis and migration are actually quite easy. And I didn't believe him at the time. 
10 years ago, about five, six years ago, I did start to pay closer attention. And I think he is absolutely right. So what I was referring to is the Trojan horse side of Orban, right? That he was going to bring in Putin's interest within the EU and basically make sure that the EU can't act abroad because they need unanimity in foreign policy. So I think that's diminished. Internally, this is much harder, right? And I think this is where the EU faces a real problem because on the one hand, there was a need for member states to have more discretion at the national level when it came to certain policy levers. I mean, you've given up monetary policy in the case of Eurozone members, not a problem for Hungary, they still have their own currency, but for other Euro members, you've given up monetary policy, you're severely limited what you can do in fiscal policy terms. You have no industrial policy anymore, right? Trade policy has been given to the EU. So much of these economic things that governments need the levers of power they need to respond to legitimate demands of their publics you no longer have. So there, I think the EU has given more flexibility over the past few years or the past five, six, seven years. When it comes to the rule of law, you're basically in this similar story where Orban is saying, I'm democratically elected. We do things differently in Hungary, and this is what the people want. And he has never broken a rule internally in that sense, right? He had two-thirds majorities, he could change the constitution, and so on, right? So a very different story from Poland there. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the EU, if they're going to want real change domestically, they're going to have to be much tougher on the money. And they're not willing to do that yet because of Ukraine right now. If that conflict somehow gets solved, and it's hard to believe that it will anytime soon, and they're probably going to get tougher because there's real money on the line. But you're absolutely right. We're not there yet, and things aren't looking that great either. And to restate what I take to be Dan Kalman's core argument, this provides a huge crisis of legitimacy for the European Union. And this is something that I've said many times, including on this podcast. You know, I understand as a German or French or Italian citizen why I should share my sovereignty with other democratic nations within the same continent. The argument goes that there's all kinds of big problems and challenges that you can only solve together, that when you pool your resources and your influence, you actually have more control over what happens in the world than if small countries like Denmark, say, try to go it alone. And that argument is not always easy to sell to people. A lot of people who do continue to see the nations as the primary political allegiance say, well, perhaps we'd rather have you know more independence and less power than vice versa. But by and large, I think that's an argument that European citizens are willing to accept. That argument becomes a lot harder to make when you're saying, oh, by the way, you're going to share your sovereignty, not with voters in Hungary or in Poland, but with dictator in Hungary, with a would-be authoritarian government in Poland. And, you know, it seems to me like the EU has effectively given up on resolving that basic problem of legitimacy. It basically has accepted that Hungary is going to be a semi-authoritarian state for the foreseeable future. And as long as Viktor Orban doesn't too actively impede decision-making within the European Union or too actively sabotage Europe's attempts to protect Ukraine against this terrible invasion, they're sort of going to go along with it. And so far they have. No, I don't disagree. And it's not just the EU that is to blame, right? I mean, it's easy to point the finger to the Commission for being weak, but the Commission needs the Council. And the council where the heads of state or government are sitting and they all tend to have a veto, that's where countries like Germany, I think, have been in general very reluctant to push Hungary too much, right? And I think other member states, I mean, especially Poland, of course, because they face similar rule of law issues at home, 
where populists also seem to keep winning, and there's an election coming up there next year, they're very reluctant to do this because in the end it is interfering with internal affairs. It's also not clear, and that I find the hardest issue, is if the EU were to come down really, really hard on the EU, let's say agree to suspend voting rights, take away all structural and cohesion funds, take away all next generation money, that this wouldn't help Orban even more. And again, this is something Dan Kellerman has written on about much more eloquently than I ever have. But you know, there is an exit valve there that many young Hungarians have already left for other EU member states, very easy within the single market with this free movement of labor. They don't vote anymore. Orban's made it very hard for them to vote when they live in the rest of the EU. I think it's a really deep challenge to both what impact the European Union has had on democracy and more broadly the narrative that really dominated European politics for a good number of decades, right? So after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, the idea was that the European Union would be the carrot which ensures stable democratic transition in at least the more successful countries of Central and Eastern Europe. So membership of the European Union was a big prize because it came with structural adjustment funds which helped the economy grow because it came with the ability of the citizens to vote in Europe because it was seen as the prize of sort of being the grown-ups at the table who had joined the club of rich and developed and democratic nations. Um, and so the idea was that the desire by politicians in those countries and by voters in those countries to be a member of the European Union would give them reasons to reform, to really put in place working democratic institutions. And then once they joined the European Union, the membership in that club and certain sort of rule of law mechanisms from within the EU were meant to ensure that those countries would forever remain democratic. And as I take it in its most radical form, the kind of objection that somebody like Dan makes is to say, actually, for two sets of reasons, membership in the EU has not only not stopped these countries from backsliding into dictatorships, it's actually made it easier for people like Viktor Orban to win. And the two arguments here are firstly, that all of those structural adjustment funds and so on, all of those EU monies flow through the government. So if you control your national government, you are actually able to both potentially make yourself rich in various ways, but more importantly, pay off your domestic political allies and punish anybody who speaks out against you in ways that makes it easier to take control. And then secondly, the safety valve, where going back to the idea of exit voice and loyalty, normally what you want when an institution is going wrong is that people who are loyal to it in some kind of way stay and fight, stay and exercise the voice, stay and say, we're going to make sure to fix this. And when a key constituency of those people, like young, educated people, now find it much easier to exit, which is wonderful for them because it means they have good opportunities, they get lead decent lives, they have freedom of speech, hopefully they have good jobs. But that key constituency of people keeps leaving the country, making the residual population much more sympathetic to those far-right politicians and much more pliant. And so, as I see it, this is really a challenge to the most basic narrative about what the EU was supposed to deliver for the European continent over the last 30 years. Absolutely. And I think it's one thing we never worried about, even in the last 10 years, where, again, populists were so focused, especially in the West and the North of Europe, on immigration. What immigrants from the rest of Europe or from the Middle East and so on what they were going to do to the social fabric of these you know, relatively homogeneous nation states and how you were going to 
integrate them all in such a record time and that this created all kinds of tensions, frictions, especially at the local level, in local schools, with local services, all very well documented. But what we never worried about or didn't worry about enough, plenty of people were worried about it, I guess they didn't get so much attention, was what emigration was doing to the democratic fabric of the states where they were coming from, right? And so, of course, the United States faces this itself to some extent with some of the deep red states, right? I mean, uh, again, not to pick on one or the other state in the U.S., but if you think of Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, if you're a young person, you're educated, you're gay, you're not white, it's not a great place to be. And so... The U.S. allows you to go to New York or Los Angeles or Seattle or something like this. And so it's wonderful from a personal opportunity point of view. But as you say, it does make these states more homogeneous, more conservative, and hence more open to the you know implementation for Republican undermining of democracy efforts that have been so successful there. So here's a link to something else I wanted to ask you about, which is that a lot of Polish immigrants and immigrants from other Eastern European countries used to live in the United Kingdom, and a good number of them have returned because of a combination of Brexit and the pandemic. And I wonder whether we know anything about the demographic of those Polish returnees to Poland, whether in those upcoming Polish elections, they might strengthen the opposition or the ruling government. It would be ironic if they boosted the opposition. But more broadly, this is just sort of my excuse for transitioning to the next topic. I want to ask you about where we're at with, you know, one of the huge debates about the European Union, one of the huge debates about Europe for the last five or 10 years, which was Brexit. Does it look at this point as for Brexit is done and dusted and we sort of know what the new settlement looks like? Are there still major questions about what the relationship between Britain and the European Union is going to be? And what is the impact of Brexit likely to be on the strength of the European Union on the one side and the strength of the United Kingdom on the other side? Yeah, it's an excellent segue into one of our favorite topics, Brexit, which that discussion looks very different today than it looked six years ago or four years ago or for that matter two years ago. So quickly on the Polish returnees, I mean, that's actually a very good question because there were close to 2 million at some point. Many of them were younger. One of the major appeals of being in the UK is that you had a very strong pound, right? And so a lot of those sent money back home, whether it was to their wives and kids or whether it was to their parents or grandparents. A lot of them started to go home as the pound started to get weaker. And of course, a major shock of Brexit was a weakening of the pound, which happened right away in June, July 2016, right after the referendum took place. So it is interesting. I mean, you look at the UK today, and it's a winter of discontent 2.0. So it's really, I mean, I was born right after it when Margaret Thatcher came to power, which was the cold winter, public sector strikes, rubbish not being picked up on the streets, the dead going unburied, and Thatcher managed to narrate this as a crisis of the British state that needed dramatic reform. Of course, there's no election next year. Rishi Sunak will do everything he can to wait the full two years before he goes to the polls, which the last has to be January 2025. It'll probably be December 2024. And he's facing this winter now, right? So the nurses are asking for 19% raise because they haven't seen, I mean, they're living on very poor wages, the, the state of the National Health Service. So all of these things that were covered up because the political debate was purely focused on getting Brexit done, are now coming home, right? It's also been the case that because of the lockdowns and the shutdown of supply chains 
and the lack of trade and people travel between the UK and the rest of Europe since March 2020, that a lot of these problems that Brexit has created were kind of covered up, right? And it was very convenient for political elites to point to the pandemic for the collapse in trade, even though at some point many economists started to say, okay, trade collapsed everywhere, but in the rest of Europe, it has now recovered. And in the UK, it hasn't. What's up? This has to be something to do with that thing called Brexit. It is striking though, Yasha. I mean, there is a almost um, omerta, right? As the mafia calls about a culture of silence that you just don't talk about it. It's true for the Tories. It's true for the Labour Party. And it's true for many others within the political system. There was a wonderful 30-minute kind of factual movie done by the Financial Times that's had more than a few million views now that kind of basically very boringly puts together what has happened to small business owners, to workers, and things like that, all because of Brexit. I think people are starting to realize this now. Does that mean real change could happen, that this relationship is not quite settled? I doubt it, because it's very clear that Keir Starmer, the labor leader, wants to not open the conversation about freedom of movement of labor. He talks the same talk about British jobs for British people, investing in our own and things like this, as the Tories are doing. He doesn't want to have a customs union and you know, wants to keep the kind of free trade movement that the UK now has. So there is no option for a UK voter, with maybe the exception of the Liberal Democrats. But again, they're not getting off anything of these polls, right? They're stuck at basically a handful of seats and they look to remain there. Ironically, to remain there. For those of us who haven't seen the movie in the Financial Times, would you answer the sort of devil's advocate question, right? So I imagine the devil's advocate on this topic is going to say something like the following. You know, the Remain campaign in 2016 said that if we leave the European Union, it's all going to be a disaster, right? The pound will just decline a little bit, it'll completely crash. We will have real poverty, a real economic cratering. You know, we'll have this sort of very protracted conflict with the European Union and so on. And look, you know, it wasn't pretty. It was a very messy process of a number of years. Nobody is saying that this was pleasant or that it was elegant. But a bunch of years later, you know, it looks like we have this stable settlement with the European Union. We're clearly able to cooperate on many important subjects like helping Ukraine against the Russian invasion. You know, the kind of rancor of these years is slowly starting to subside. And when somebody like Keir Starmer, who's less associated with the government, you know, with Boris Johnson and so on, is going to come in, it'll be even easier for Britain and European countries to collaborate on the things that are important. And, you know, economically, the sort of big disasters that were announced don't really seem to have arrived. And so far as things are looking pretty poorly at the moment, that's to do with, you know, the Ukraine war and shock to energy prices and, you know, perhaps underinvestment for a number of years in Britain and all kinds of other things that aren't really directly related to Brexit. So if something like that is the sort of devil's advocate case, what's sort of a concrete response to it? You know, how do you show that Britain is looking so much weaker and that it is so much more needlessly poor than it would have been otherwise? And is that answer hinge effectively on a command of the economics and the hypotheticals about what GDP growth would have been over the last five years that is sort of hard to convey? Or where do you think the sort of convincing evidence here is that Brexit really has been as much of a self-inflicted wound for Britain as many economists and commentators, you know, generally seem to believe? 
I love it when you play devil's advocate. No, no, but this is excellently phrased. I think, first of all, I will concede that the Remain campaign was way off, right? The whole idea that Britain would collapse because of this. It's giving the EU way too much weight in the UK economy. That's still a you know, heavily services-based economy. I mean, much of it is still done domestically and, and so on, right? So the pound did lose value, right? Trade did go down. But the sky didn't fall. That's clear, right? So all of these things were always going to be slow motion, right? Like cheap labor, leaving, right? Going back to Poland, going back to uh, much of uh, Eastern Europe, uh, leaving the country because they don't feel like welcome there anymore and, and things like this, right? So that was always going to create all kinds of bottlenecks slowly over time. And, and we're seeing this happening now. So I think there's two points that I would make that go against this devil's advocate position. Number one, I would have agreed with this if it was 1995 or even 2005, right? Meaning a world that was moving towards free trade and democracy, that was opening up, that was, you know, where the WTO ran trade, where international organizations were respected, even though not perfect, and were gaining in power. And that would have been a, a world where industrial policy didn't play a big role, right? You look at the debates of the last few years, what the Chinese are doing, what the Americans are doing now with the Inflation Reduction Act, and more and more discussions around industrial policy as part of strategic autonomy for Europe in response to the pandemic. Good luck when you're on your own, right? It's a lot harder to be Korea or the UK or, for that matter, Argentina, right, where you don't have a big block, a given market where you can do these things together, where you can debate this, discuss this. Same with research and development, right, where the Brits are no longer part of these big money, these big projects, right, and have to do all of this stuff on their own. So that's point number one. Point number two, you could say, okay, you can just play the Singapore game, right? Singapore does this very well. I mean, they're in the end, small island nation, state. The UK can play this role offshore rather than from China, offshore from the rest of Europe. English speaking, great universities, all kinds of talent so they can attract all this stuff. Well, look at the list stress experiment with tax cuts and how well that worked, right? The thing is now that they're no longer in the EU, and I don't want to put this all down to the EU, but the fact is when they had that protective blanket of the EU trade, of the EU market, of banks heavily invested in the rest of Europe, of easy, cheap labor that was easily coming in and out of the UK that they're now resisting, the markets had a violent response to this because they're like, wait, hang on a minute. How are you going to pay for this? Because you still need to spend on health and education and also in industrial policy. You want to do this with a low tax regime. Okay, we want a giant premium on holding 30-year gilts, the British 30-year bonds, right? And so that, I think, was a giant wake-up call that a lot of, I think, British elites had underestimated, right? So industrial policy is real. It's much better to do it part as a block. You cannot play the kind of Singapore on Thames game because markets will punish you. And then third, you've built an economy. And I think that's probably the one thing Tony Blair admits was a mistake now is to open up the doors of Britain in 2004 to anybody who wanted to emigrate from Eastern Europe and never expecting this to be a few million people and having real impacts and sowing the seeds of populism, that this should have been managed more carefully. And so that's all hindsight, right? Of course, the Tories started doing this in 2010 already. And it still is very hard to maintain this. I mean, that's one thing which I think is a weakness 
of the European Union, as we talked about before, not just for the states that are seeing emigration, but also for the states that are seeing too much immigration in too short a period of time. But you did build a services economy based on very cheap labor. Where are they going to come from now, right? It's going to take years to invest in a kind of vocational training and so on that they now want to see. And so that's where I think Brexit in the end was a self-inflicted wound that's very hard to return from because it was a democratic decision. Well, that's a very good response to the devil's advocate. How does it play out over 10 or 20 years? So is this a kind of 10, 15 year wound where, for example, the low skill labor is now missing in Britain or the perhaps medium skill labor that that's going to provide incentives to actually train more British born people, many of whom may have roots all around the world? And, you know, in 10 or 15 years, it actually means that the human resource base of a country is much improved and perhaps the wage base is higher than it would have been otherwise. Or do you think that this is a sort of 25, 50 year realm of damage? I mean, one way I think about this, and you're an economist, I'm not, or you're a political scientist who knows a lot more about economics than I do. You know, I have a sort of naive idea that at some point a country is going to catch up to its production frontier. Right. That as we see after wars, as we see after World War II, you can have this enormous economic destruction. But at some point, countries then quite quickly catch up economically to the kind of level that would be predicted by, you know, effectively their human resources and the level of technological development in the world at the time. And so I guess one of the questions I've always had in the back of my mind in Britain is if Britain has this sort of self-handicapping sabotage for Brexit, is this going to sort of permanently put it on a different trajectory because capital flees from the country and there's fewer skilled people in the country, a few ambitious young people in the country and all kinds of other things that actually will just change where the British economy is going to stand 20, 25 years from now? Or is it just creating all of these short to midterm roadblocks but that allows space for kind of growth spurt later on when some of those things become less relevant or are solved and the country is going to catch up to its production and technological frontier in the kind of way in which other countries might do after an inflationary crisis or a war or some kind of other you know, major shock. Yeah, so I think a few things will happen. Right? I mean, realistically, on the policy front, the only way forward for the next whether it's a Labour government, even when it's a new Conservative government. Looks unlikely right now, but at some point they'll be back in power, as they always are. It's just to become more pragmatic on this stuff, right? Do bilateral deals with the EU on Labour exchanges, make it easier for British pop artists to go and give concerts in Italy, Austria, Germany, right? rather than having permits in those countries individually. It also could make the immigration system in the UK more democratic in a sense, right? I mean, it, the one argument you can kind of buy from some minority voters in the UK, black or, you know, African or South Asian that said, you know, why does my cousin in Sri Lanka have to wait seven years to get on a list and somebody from Romania or France can come here tomorrow, right? So in a sense, the immigration system, if it's cleverly designed, could basically go on like, these are the things we need in the country. Let's attract them. We have to get out of this kind of, oh, we only want high skill immigration because low skill is bad. I was like, well, you know, you need obviously both. And you need to invest in your own workers along with it. But one doesn't exclude the other, right? So I see it as more of a short, medium-term problem that policy will adapt to, people will adapt to. And in the end, it's a very resilient place, right? I mean, it's a very rich country. They've done some kind of 
stupid stuff ideologically. As our friend Obama said, one thing you shouldn't do is stupid stuff, but they will adapt to this stuff, right? And so what I haven't seen, though, and that similar story for the United States, is you can put together these big public programs to invest in the energies of the future, and whether it's artificial intelligence or biotech and all these sorts of things. But if you want to make this stuff at home, you need to train people at all levels. And as we know, vocational training for all kinds of cultural, historical reasons, whether it's the US or the UK, it's never been their strength. That you need to start investing in today, not in five years, not in 10 years, because it takes five, six, seven years to start training new people and so on, right? And so that I don't see. I see a lot of demand incentives, tax breaks, subsidies for this and that. But on the supply side, dramatically, you know, rejiggering a system that's basically been a demand-driven economy to a more supply-side, German-style, northern Italy, right, parts of France and so on. That's a very different story. That's very interesting. You just mentioned Germany. We've talked a little bit about whether or not Germany has faced up to what Zeitenwende would really mean, whether the country is really willing to let go of what it takes to be the basic post-war deal, which is to free ride on, you know, security provided mostly by the United States, but also by the United Kingdom, to some extent France, while sort of feeling a little bit morally superior about the fact that, you know, these other countries are so terribly militaristic and spend so much money on their army rather than on nicer things like, you know, theaters and operas. I'm being a little polemical, but I do think that that is something where I remain skeptical whether Germany has even started that debate in earnest. And of course, I'm very comfortable being a Germany critic as somebody who grew up there and has in some ways written critically about the country. But taking a step further back from the debate about Seitenwender, I am struck by the extent to which Germany is doing well, especially when you think about the sort of stability of a political system, the lack of a really big far-right political party. You now have the alternative for Germany, which has about 10% of the vote and is quite extreme and that is very concerning. You have some people in its broad milieu who are willing to commit crimes. Uh, we saw recently, uh, uh, you know, a, a number of people getting arrested because they had planned this sort of slightly crazy no hope approach, but nevertheless, some real conspiracy among people, well, some amount of institutional influence. One of them was a local judge in Berlin and so on. I mean, all of that is quite concerning. But you know, when you compare the state of Germany to the state of France, where you know Marine Le Pen is usually in the second round of a presidential election now and continues to expand her influence. And then on the other hand, on the left, you have Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who is a much more radical leftist than you know anybody who holds real institutional power in Germany. When you look obviously in, at Italy, which has, you know, one dysfunctional government after the next and in which, you know, the most respectable, moderate power on, you know, right of center has now become Silvio Berlusconi, the former populist three or four time prime minister. When you compare it obviously to the United States and the threat that you continue to see from Donald Trump and the MAGA movement, when you compare it internationally to India and Brazil and so on, Germany is just the major democracy in the world that seems by many metrics politically to be doing the best. And I have to say that I'm a little bit puzzled by that. You know, there's many good things about Germany. I think it does have a strong media that has not become as polarized as that in the United States, that remains a much more honest broker and therefore commands somewhat more trust. 
It has a lot of geographic dispersion of economic and political power. You know, it obviously does have a quite successful export-driven economy that creates a very large middle class, not just a very affluent upper middle class as in the United States, but also people in the middle middle class and the lower middle class, skilled blue-collar workers who have pretty decent lives. So I get that the country has a bunch of strengths. But, you know, when I just look at the top-level economic data or other kinds of facts about Germany and France, it's not obvious to me why Germany should feel so much more functional and so much more together than France does. And yet, I think at least at a political level, that the contrast between the two countries is quite clear and quite stark. So why? Why Germany's strength? Excellent question. I think you've given a big chunk of the answer already when you said about the economic geography of Germany, right? If you think about just France and UK, these are incredibly centralized places. I mean, the UK, let's just focus on England for a moment, right? And leave out Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, which England is about 55 million of the 66, right? So it's, it's the biggest chunk. Incredibly centralized. London is the political capital, the economic capital, the cultural capital, financial capital, everything, right? So it naturally creates this kind of us versus them, us here in the countryside, them in London. Very similar in France, that's more centralized to some extent. If you'd ask me what the economic geography of what's the heavyweight in Germany, I'd say, well, you know, where to begin? It's Munich, it's Frankfurt, obviously it's Berlin, but it's also the whole rural area, it's Bremen. And Hamburg in the north, to some extent also Leipzig and <laughs> Dresden, whatever it is. There's so much economic dispersion, which also makes for less of a feeling of inequality. So that's one. Yeah, I mean, the biggest German media conglomerate, Bertelsmann, is based in Gütersloh, which is a town that most listeners to this podcast who are not German may not even know how to spell. Or pointed on a map, right? I mean, that's one. So it has that. It has, I think, and you know this better than I do, the history part. It meant that voting for a far-right party, there's much more of a stigma on it in Germany than there is in France or in Italy, where they may have forgotten their own past. That's one, right? So the number I always throw out there, if you compare Italy with Germany from 94 to 2015, is in 1994, Italy was roughly 95% the German standard of living. So they were very comparable. By 2007, before the global financial crisis, it was about 93, 92%. So, you know, Germany had done a little better. Italy had already been a decade of stagnation. By 2015, Italy was 75% of Germany's standard of living. And that's, of course, two reasons, right? Germany was growing and Italy was actually shrinking its economy. But that, if you're a Eurocrat sitting in Brussels, is what has to worry you, right? So it's not surprising that the Italians are much more willing we're not even talking about the inequality between North and South, right? Where in the South, populism goes to the left with the five-star movement, which has remained very strong in Southern Italy, even in the last election. That was, you know, seemingly taken over by the far right. But in Southern Europe, it wasn't the case. They still vote five-star movement and it's pensioners who want a guaranteed income and it's unemployed young people who want unemployment benefits. In the North, it's very different of Italy. And they have seen a kind of stagnating standard of living and so on. So that's number one. Number two, I mean, you have to give Merkel some credit. She's one of my favorite people I like to criticize for all kinds of reasons, mostly foreign policy. But from a domestic policy point of view, 
you know, four kind of centrist coalitions managed to create growth. And of course, that was partially because of her geopolitics, whether it was Russian energy or Chinese markets that kept the German model humming along. And of course, all the companies that were providing parts from much of it from Eastern Europe. So that model has done well. The question is, Yasha, is how sustainable is it, right? Because, I mean, you read the news as much as I do, but investment and trade with China in just the first half of this year is up by more than 50%, right? And so that's stuff that worries me because if you're that reliant on foreign growth and foreign authoritarian growth in this case, right? Who's to know what will happen geopolitically? Because you could see these links being severed in the way that they have happened with Russia. Maybe not tomorrow, but in the next few years, decoupling is real, right? And so that's what worries me. And the difference here is, I think, is that young people in Germany vote green and they vote liberal because the greens are probably more affluent voters. But again, Germany has more affluent young voters than Southern Europe. But something like two thirds of all the youth vote went to these two parties, right? So I do think, and that's to come back to your Zeitenwender question, there is a real disagreement there, right? Within this traffic light coalition, the SPD has this old wing that's still not quite woken up to the fact that, you know, Russia's gone and they've lost it and it's their policy is over. And Schultz has to keep that party together. And at the same time, you have the Greens and the FDP, green and yellow of the traffic light, aggressively pushing towards decoupling, decoupling from China, further decoupling from Russia, and probably much more open to investment within the EU, right? The Greens for sure, the FDP is still on its fiscal austerity horse. But the Greens would look very different. So here you can easily see an upcoming election where the Greens are the biggest party. And you see this Zeitenwende become a lot more real, right? I just don't think we're there yet, right? I mean, the Zeitenwende speech is still only, what, eight months ago, nine months ago? And they're still figuring out what this means, right? But a different generation of the SPD or the Greens would, I think, fill this in very differently than someone like Schultz, who's in the end a kind of technocrat, old guard sort of guy who wants to keep the shop together and is still kind of hoping for this crisis to go away, you get the sense. Even though he's not naive on this either, right? He was very clear the last few days that he's seen no signs of Putin of wanting to have some sort of peace deal, right? He said very clearly, Putin wants a big chunk of Ukrainian land. And as long as that's what he wants, there are no peace talks possible. In closing, where do you see the biggest dangers lurking for Europe? You said with regard to Germany, that it's its export-led business model and the reliance the country continues to have on countries like China. More broadly for Europe, what could really go wrong in the next years and what should European voters, politicians, civil society organizations do now to minimize those risks? Yeah, it's a tough question because I worry a little bit about a 1930s appeasement scenario. And this is not happening right now for the simple reason that nobody's worried about the winter of 22-23 anymore from an energy point of view. right? But that was already clear in the summer that Europe was going to get through the winter. What I'm worried about is the, the winter of 23-24 and 24-25. Right? If it is true that stalemate will persist in Ukraine and that it's also clear that there won't be enough energy in the short term to make up the shortfall of Russian oil and gas... There's a real potential here for right-wing populists, right-wing with a slight authoritarian bent, 
a la Orban to say, okay, this is ridiculous. And you can already hear the arguments, right? This is far away. Who was it, Chamberlain, who said a country far away of which we know very little about, but when he was talking about Sudetenland or the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia and so on. I mean, that's going to be like, you know, who cares about Eastern Ukraine? You can see these arguments already, right? They're basically Russian. This is not our war. Do we want a nice Christmas tree and heating? We should relax those sanctions a bit. You know, in the end, Putin will do what he does if we're not willing to. So that you could see a splintering in the Western Front, which is then again a Europe turning inward again. And that could really lead to a fracture along East-West line. I've spent the last 10 years looking at North-South, right? Within the Eurozone crisis, within the migration crisis, even during the pandemic, there was that split. But I think the more dangerous split is the Baltics, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, and then, of course, the split within the East with Hungary and the rest of Western Europe that lives much further away from Russia, that still many of them tend to think of Eastern Europe as those people out there in the Eastern Bloc, right? And, you know, Eastern Europeans have felt this, right? Central and Eastern Europe have always felt treated like second-class citizens within the EU. It's not their common European home. They've said, for years we've been warning you about Russia. You wouldn't listen. You were building pipelines. And I think they were right. They were right. I mean, I, I myself have been guilty in some of this thinking, right? That the Polish were too emotional when it came to Russia, that the Baltics were exaggerating this threat. I have made a 180-degree turn on this. And we have to build up our own defense. The U.S. is doing it, but Europe needs to do this as well, because there's another threat, and that's here in the U.S. What if a DeSantis president, what if Trump comes back? We still don't know. But a Trumpian-type Republican may not pull out a NATO, but may say, okay, this is going to be a much more transactional thing, right? I mean, how much are you willing to pay? And so moments like this, shouldn't Europe be able to do this on their own a bit more with the Americans if we can, without them if we must? That's something that hasn't sunk in yet among European elites, right? I don't want to advocate for this either, right? I mean, in the end, you know, we, we seem to be working quite well together. Let's continue it. But the idea that Europe will just hope for the best, I find a little naive. And so there, to come back to your very earliest point in this podcast, that's where the Zeitenwende is still something kind of conditional, right? I mean, we're kind of hoping that this Russian threat, that somebody will replace Putin and there will be somebody we can do business with. And then we can still do a bit more defense, but not too much, right? And change our model a little bit, but not too much. That's where I think the major potential is for, for people to take advantage of this situation. Matthias, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Music